Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuha. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper on Sunday, April 26th, 2020. Coming up on May. Coming up on May 1, and you know what May 1 is? I do, actually. Yes. Other than being May Day, it is Zeke Day. That's right. Happy birthday, Zeke. Zeke, uh, our youngest. Wish you were here. Yes. But uh, I'm sure he'll do well in uh, in California. I was going to say Santa Monica, but I guess he's technically in Venice now. But even so, close enough. Right. Happy birthday. It's a big, exciting year for Zeke in many ways. So good luck and right. happy birthday. So we're still, uh, you know, uh, I was going to say hold up, but that's not really right. We're, uh, we're, you know, enjoying our time together. We're uh, still complying with all guidelines. Complying with all guidelines, and actually it's not so rough on us. We're having a good time, um, you know, recognizing that that's not the way it is for everybody, and, and you know, we can't ignore that. But in any event, uh, we're managing here quite well. Uh, Even though there's nothing to read. Well, there's plenty to read. Plenty to read. No, I'm sick. I'm sick of the newspapers. Oh, the newspapers are terrible. Listen, don't get me started with the New York Times. I'll start talking about sports, the lack of sports in the New York Times. You'll never get me to. But stop. even a lot of websites, it's all about. It's all the same article. You yeah, know? So yeah. It's true. What people are doing but to stay lot, entertained. And yet, I maintain. What is my favorite book? I blah, ma- blah, blah, maintain blah, blah. we have a lot to talk about. Uh, so let's see. Let's see. Um, uh, but, you know, television. We saw a show last night, which is not what I'll call brilliant theater or anything like that, but it hit home in an odd way. It was uh, an HBO movie, brand new, broadcast for the first time last night, called A Bad Education, starring one of your favorites and mine, Hugh Jackman, and also Allison Janney. We both like Allison Janney. Yes. And also uh, Ray Romano. Nothing wrong with Ray Romano. No. Uh, and it was about, what's interesting is, it was about a scandal uh, at Roslyn High School. Uh, and Roslyn High School is in Long Island. And what's notable about Roslyn High School for me is it is it right next to Jericho. Jericho High School. So were they arch rivals? No, 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 no. But you wouldn't know. Here's the best part. Well, maybe they were. I, you know, something. Well, you know what's increasingly clear to me as I get older? I had no idea what was going on when I was a teenager. <laughs> maybe I'll feel that way when I'm 80. I'll say I had no idea what was going on when I was 60. It's possible. But I clearly had no idea when I was 17 or 16 or whatever. So I wouldn't call them rivals, but you wouldn't know it from this show, because in this show, uh, which focuses on the scandal in a high school, we don't want to give too much away, but uh, they set the stage by emphasizing uh, what a fine high school, what a fine school district Roslyn was, and where they stood in terms of the competition for the best school district in the entire country. They keep saying fourth or something, and they keep comparing themselves when they think about their plans to Syosset, and guess what? Jericho. And there is a delicious moment. And I can't remember who says it to the three characters. And they said, Jericho, those sons of bitches. And uh, I don't know. Who, no, I thought it was a, main, a minor character. Doesn't make any difference. Uh, yeah. All the three people I mentioned were nodding their heads vigorously. So you had Hugh Jackman, of all people, nodding, nodding in agreement to the phrase, Jericho, those sons of bitches, which is worth watching that show for me just for that. Right. Just for that. Right. Uh, so in a, in a funny way... Jericho was a key player. Yes, and and, and, it, and of course we're smiling because Jericho, since uh, as if it hadn't already, clearly has surpassed Roslyn and is now the number one ranked school district in the country of public schools. So we'll see if that lasts. But in any event, my point is that it kind of hit home in an odd way, and I connected for the Long Island part of it. 
But as, as a movie, what did you think, Pam? It wasn't fantastic. Well, I thought it? it was what we used to call a TV movie. It was. It was. It, it was, it was HBO, I thought, was supposed to be just yeah. a step above that, honestly. Yeah. It was a, cla- a well-made TV movie yeah. with real people in it. Yeah, it was funny, and it was brutally sort of honest. Yeah. I mean, they did not, uh, you know, dress people up. No. They really um, made it... It was very, they had a lot of uh, verisimilitude in terms of portraying Long Island teachers, administrators, yeah. students, uh, and, not, and not a lot of mystery. They just kind of, yeah. it was like a, again, that's what makes it a, a TV movie in a sense. There wasn't a lot of artfulness to it. It was just, here it is, here's no, the story, here's you the characters. Think, actually, you would think that um, being so brutally honest yeah. was non TV movie ish. Yeah. You know, because usually. When I think of TV movie, I think of more of Hallmark, where yeah. everything is kind of smoothed yeah. over and soft focus. Yeah. This was not soft All focus. Right, well, it's HBO. Um, it's HBO. But it wasn't, uh, you know, but... Uh, it, well, it, the, the principal thing, if I can say one thing about the movie's plot, is that there is a scandal that, and uh, it becomes uh, a, a, a young girl. Young girl. I think I'm entitled to say that. 15, 16-year-old girl on the school paper. It's a young woman, okay, I would say. Okay, young woman becomes aware of this. And the question is whether she's going to blow the whistle and write the big article that's going to expose this. And it's going to uh, basically put at risk the hierarchy of the school, superintendent. And, I, you know, I, I don't want to give away what happens. But I will say that I'm watching this. And I was on the school paper and making decisions with respect to articles and stuff like that. And I'm saying to myself, wow, you know, that would be... Seems impossible that a kid could come to that conclusion. You got a lot going on as a junior or in high school, many, many things going on. This was kind of a complicated scandal, and this kid's going to run it down and get the details and get the level of confidence that you need to confirm it to to write a story like that. That seemed to me hugely challenging. A couple of things. Yeah. This was about 20 years ago. Yeah. You were an editor about 50 years ago. Okay. Okay. Yes. So times have changed. I guess. Uh, another thing is, uh, to some extent, uh, I don't think I'm giving you anything away by saying that uh, the people in the movie were portrayed as tremendous dopes in many ways. Yes. In turn, or just very naive. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't that hard for uh, this student to dig up uh, information. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but anyway, so uh, even if you're not from Roslyn or Jericho, uh, <laughs> this is a pretty good movie. <laughs> sons of bitches. <laughs> to watch. Yeah. Uh, but something that I think we recommend uh, more highly than that, we've been watching a series called Giri Haji, which is a BBC production, uh, BBC slash Netflix, uh, made uh, out of the UK. But it's uh, a crime uh, drama that takes place in two cities simultaneously, Tokyo, Japan on the one hand, and London, England on the other. Uh, and it's quite gripping. I mean, it's it's an eight-part miniseries uh, with primarily Japanese actors who are taking the lead in the action in both uh, in both these countries. Uh, and uh, here, here we really don't want to give anything away. But uh, I find it very engaging. And I will say, I don't think of this as your kind of show, but you're more wrapped up in it than I am. I mean, yeah. I think that's true. So I'm going to repeat the name because it's tricky. Yeah. Giri Haji. Yeah. G-I-R-I. G-I-R-I. Haji. H-A-J-I. Right. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's violent. It's really, uh, but it, it's violent, but it's interesting. I mean, ultimately, 
it turns out to be a lot about family. Yeah. Um, so um, we're not through it all the way, yeah. but it is gripping and it's kind of unique uh, the way the story is told. Yes. I think. Um, yeah, I think so. we can say this. First of all, I, I think we can say Giri Haji means duty, shame. And I think we can say that it centers on the interaction and the actions of two brothers, one who is a police officer and the other who's in the Yakuza, which is the uh, Japanese mafia. I'm not saying anything else. Good. <laughs> because I know you, you you slip into giving things oh, away. Those sons of bitches. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So we're we're quite uh, immersed in Japanese culture lately because we still have we mentioned that we're watching no, Midnight. Well, let's save that for another episode. I don't want Midnight to, oh, Diner. All right, Midnight Diner. We'll we're not going to talk about, about it a lot now. But uh, what are you afraid we won't have anything to talk about next week? Is that because we want okay. to spread the Japanese uh, joy around? You know what I mean? But we're we're into t- Japanese television, which is apt because Zeke's birthday's coming up, and he's the person, the only person we know who's been to Tokyo. Well, we know some other people who've been to Japan, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just kind of fun because I am so immersed in, uh, historical Western culture. So it's really fun to take this leap into uh, Asian culture in the way we are. So, um, it is fun. Yeah. So Uh, Giri Haji, Haji, which is not subtitled. The Japanese actors, I can tell you this because I looked it up. There are some Japanese actors who had to learn some English. There are subtitles. There are some subtitles. When people are speaking Japanese. That's right. Yeah. For those of us who need that. But, uh, (laughs) a lot of the Japanese actors learned, learned some English for this. Um, okay. So then we have, uh, we're going to talk about a few different things in, in terms of the implications on the economy from the uh, pandemic. Uh, and uh, it's interesting because uh, some of the articles that we've looked at here has kind of helped me at least understand or sort of filter through how this works. I mean, you have the an article on front page of the weekend section of the Wall Street Journal and the exchange section saying $1 billion problem is brewing. It's about the beer industry. Right, and it show, and it, it gives these amazing statistics about how much beer is going to go spoiled. Uh, Ten million gallons of beer abandoned in venues in March, a billion dollar estimated cost to the industry. What do they mean by that? They mean that when this uh, came upon us, when the coronavirus really hit home, there were two events that were coming up that are big beer drinking events, and one was St. Patrick's Day. Right. Uh, and the other is uh, March Madness. So all this beer had moved in these aluminum kegs to all these different venues waiting to be quaffed at, uh, you know, when these events occurred. The events didn't occur. The beer is still sitting there. And guess what? The beer doesn't last forever. The beer only lasts two to six months. And there are two problems. Number one is the beer is going to go bad. That, that's the main problem. And number two is the manufacturers need the kegs back. To, to put in fresh beer for, right. for whatever the pandemic is. Uh, aside from not getting any money for all of this. Uh, well, well, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to okay. get to that. So it's a big economic problem. but It's but an environmental problem. It's an environmental problem because you can't dump the beer. And you can dump milk. Yeah. Which we found out. But you can't and people, dump beer. And, uh, but you can't beer is dump a problem. Beer yeah. Because of the pH right. levels. But in terms of the economic... So some, what some people are doing, yeah. in the article it said they're reprocessing the beer. Oh, that's right. Um, so that it, you know the pH level is okay, and then they can, um, you know. But some people are also out. sending it to distillers who make it into um, disinfectant. Disinfectant. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. There you go. But it's, that's not an option for everybody. The vodka. And in, in yeah. the you know in some of the quantities, it's just uh, it's not uh, doable. But, but you know, but and I'm looking at this and say, okay, it's a terrible problem. But 
When you think, I know. <laughs> when you think of the beer industry. I know our listeners now are, are raising their hands to say, well, Bring I'll help. <laughs> I could drink some. Yeah, those, but, but, uh, but, but it's not a problem that's going to sink in. And we're in doing it. our part. It's not a problem that's going to sink in industry. Yeah. Because, yeah, they'll lose money and Heiser-Busch will lose money. But you know something? There's an ongoing demand two months from now, six months from now, eight months ago, for beer. Anheuser-Busch will still be a multi-zillion dollar company. They'll take it in stride. It will work itself out. It's just that it's a temporary loss. Yeah, but so, what about Odd Bird Brewing? No, no, no. Forget about Odd Bird Brewing. I don't want to talk about that now. I'm just talking about the, the kind of big dollar problem you have here. And frankly, Odd Bird Brewing will be okay too. And let me come back to that. If you have a product, here's my thesis for today. Okay. If you have a product that the public is interested in on an ongoing basis and you have a, uh, a, a supportable cost basis for it, which means you have a good margin between what you're selling it for and what, what it costs you to make it, you'll be okay. You'll be okay in the long run. It's certainly clear of the beer business. In some industries, you have to adjust. And this takes us to an article that the journal had on home ownership, which says now there's a lot of people can't meet their mortgage. How do you work that out? And they have said, they have an article here on what a new kind of home ownership, which has emerged, and they're saying it could gain traction in the pandemic. And here's the way this work works. A home buyer receives cash instead of getting a mortgage, receives cash from a bank, let's say, in exchange for a share of ownership of the home. There are co-owners. Okay. okay. There's not a loan. There are co-owners. These have a percentage. And as and every month, what the homeowner, the occupant does is pay a so-called dividend to the bank. Mm-hmm. And that might increase or depending on the level of the payment, decrease the occupant's share. Mm-hmm. All right, which affects ultimately who shares in the resale gain when it's mm-hmm. sold, mm-hmm. or uh, you know whether in fact uh, the home the occupant's ownership level sinks into a level that he abandons it all to the bank. But all this is done on a variable, gradual basis. It's not like you miss a payment and lose your home. All right, so that's an adjustment that one can make in the real estate market, which will make it possible for people to stay in their homes. Whether that exactly is what happens or not, we'll see. But I think it could well be what happens. And that may be that a solution. That sounds awful, Dan. That means the banks own everything. No, that means the bank owns a piece. No, but it could be a, a big freaking piece. But it's better than losing your home from missing one mortgage payment. When you miss a mortgage payment, there's an acceleration clause in the mortgage. It means that all the payments are due off it. Okay? Is or, that always the case? Not always the case. Because or, or I have you, close relatives who... We're known for missing many payments. Or, well, because the bank doesn't want to foreclose. Or or what happens is simply that if you don't make the mortgage payment, they're entitled to foreclose. Mm-hmm. And uh, they sell it. That you're familiar with. They sell the home. The bank sells the home in a foreclosure sale. Yes, that I understand. Okay, this prevents them. This right. doesn't happen under this. Okay? But in any event... But my, you never own it. My, you just own a piece of it. You own a piece That's of just it. not the American dream. It is. If you own the largest piece of it, I think... And, and then the what do they say when you you know, you know put up like a, a purple fence or something? But there's and other, then they there's, say, there's, but we own it and we don't want a purple fence. They don't have any rights to this clause. They, they have zero rights? No, no, they they have zero have no rights, rights to that. Plus, you don't need a down payment. Here you have people who are able to get into home ownership equity without making a down payment. Because the bank's actually paying the down payment. So anyway, we can get into that. It's still, it's, I'm uncomfortable. All right. I'm Not for you. With my point is that there are ways to deal with it. But what really opened my eyes to thinking about things this way. Is so are you article, planning to do this? Are you planning to like no. buy a bunch of homes we're, we're, and sell people a little bit? No, no, no. I'm not a banker. No? Not a banker. And nor am I on the other side of this. We don't even have a mortgage. So we're okay. Don't worry about it. I don't want to worry you. 
But what got me thinking about this, because these are industries, people are going to own homes. They're going to want to own homes. They're going to continue to invest in real estate for themselves. They need a place to live. That says an industry which will work its way through one way or another. But what got me thinking about this was the article you're going to talk about, which is the article by Gabriella Hamilton in the Times Magazine section about the restaurant business. And why don't you, why don't you explain that? Well, Gabrielle Hamilton, we talked about her before. Yeah. She owns the restaurant Prune right. in New York City on the Lower East Side. And um, and also she's related to people out here in these parts, mm-hmm. uh, Jim Hamilton and uh, uh, her sister. Right. Uh, but um, the article in the New York Times, and she's been writing for the New York Times, and she's been writing bits in the magazine section and uh, giving recipes. And more than once, I and other people have said, this woman can write. And that's true about this article as well. Before I say anything else, I should say, read this article, The Kitchen is Closed, by Gabrielle Hamilton in the New York Times Magazine section this week, April 26th. Um, And what it does is it tells the story of her restaurant from its very inception Uh, The first time she walks in the kind of uh, disgusting remains of an old uh, French bistro Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, envisions her little 14-table restaurant that she's uh, been running for 20 years. And uh, it's quite, it's excellent. It's very interesting. Takes you through a lot of the financial aspects of it, just what it takes to run the restaurant, and it also takes you through her personal voyage of, uh, you know, just uh, making the decision to close even before the edicts came out that restaurants had to close well, just, down. Just before, just before. Yes, yeah. but she had already made that, you know, decision. Um, because, but because of the pandemic, she was, yes, she's anticipating yes. the pandemic. So what do we do? You know, do we try to? Uh, but she's closed. She's right. not doing takeout. She's not doing curbside. Right. She's not doing, you know, gift certificates. She's laid laid everybody off. Yes. She said, uh, Um, forget it. But just so we're clear, she's in Manhattan and she's in, I forget where, is it the... Lower East Side. Lower East Side, right? And she makes the point that when she started the Lower East Side, it was nothing and she was paying $450 a month in her own place. It was nearby. Well, she started the restaurant in that area because that's where she lived. She lived in that area because it was relatively affordable for Manhattan. But now it's not. But now, now the not. area has changed completely. And where she was at one, one time the oasis in the area, she was bringing, uh, she's all the right motivations. Uh, her heart's in the right place. She's bringing good food and somewhat affordable to an area that was underserved. She's tremendously popular. She's uh, a media presence. She's been on television. She has won James Beard Awards. Uh, right. You know, she, she, she writes for the New York Times, as you this, say. Regularly. This is what she wanted she to create. more prominent. She wanted to create a restaurant that would serve as delicious and interesting food as the serious restaurants elsewhere in the city, but in a setting that would welcome, not intimidate, my ragtag friends and neighbors, each East Village painters, poets, but, butches, queens, saxophone players, uh, etc. I wanted a place where you could go after work on your day off if you had only a line cook's paycheck, but a line cook's palate. Right. So she, and, and, and she was successful in that. She, yes. By any measure, she's successful. She's prominent. The restaurant's prominent. It's 
jammed. There are people there all the time. Uh, and uh, you would think, you know, the world is her oyster. She's able to buy out her investors over some time. So she's gotten rid of those nasty investors. She's on her own. And then she looks at the pandemic situation and she realizes she's on hiatus. And she says, you know, and, and what comes clear in the article, and she has some facts and figures, she has no cushion. She has no margin for error. She, when she shuts down the doors, she has enough money to pay people for one week, and she's flat out of cash. She's done. All right? Right. And matter of fact, she's got a lot of bills she can't pay. It's not like she says, I'm going into my reserve fund now. Yeah. I've been able to put away a zillion dollars. She hasn't put away, it feels like she hasn't put away any money. Right. Quite honestly. And on top of that, uh, it feels like she's been killing herself. Yeah. It's not yeah. like she's got a restaurant. She said, well, I'm easy street now. I've, I've got it. I'm successful. It's all happening. She talks at length about her doing the nastiest jobs in the kitchen, which is yeah. uh, cleaning the, what's it, the grease trap, you know? <laughs> no, not really the grease trap. Pretty but, close to it. Yeah. And, and, and being on her hands and knees and doing stuff and working seven days a week. And you're saying to yourself, how can this be? This well, person first of all, is first of all, she, successful. She clearly is that kind of person. She might be, but okay. it sounds awful. Uh, well, um, I, we talked before. We've been talking for years about the margins uh, being has, so tight right. for the food business, and she even has a liquor license. I mean, right. she's selling wine, right? Uh, so, but she is she's just making it, right? Which is crazy to me. And so what that, leads her... Deal, that's the food well, that's what, business. Well, that's that's why that's t- well, all these restaurants are in such big trouble. But, so when she says to herself, what about reopening? How, how does it look? And she actually has a very clear-eyed view of the situation. And her view of the situation is, well, maybe, maybe not. Because does her restaurant make sense anymore? Uh, has the neighborhood so changed that the economics require her to charge $20 for Bloody Mary now instead of $7? Is that what she has to do? And she says, I can't do that. That's not my restaurant. That's not, and maybe I can't get it, but I just, it's just not what I am. Um, And she's undecided by the end of it, but you can easily see her concluding that she won't reopen. And you have to, and she says too, this has to be true of other restaurants. And she posed a question, which I think is a fair question, which is what's happening, is it, what is happening in part, when you think of the economics, is that the coronavirus is really causing some places to re-examine where they are, and they were already very tenuous. And the places that are very, very tenuous, as opposed to Anheuser-Busch, okay, maybe you have to take a step back and say, which is not a good thing, I, this doesn't make sense for me to go on. And I read this and I say, she should go on, but not there. She's got to find a new place. It doesn't well, make sense I, I, for But I don't think she wants to be in a new place. Oh, why not? I, because she's where she loves to be but with people she wants anymore. to be with. She's creating a community out of those people. Here's what she says. I started my restaurant yeah. as a place for people to talk to one another with a very decent but affordable glass of wine and an expertly prepared plate of simply braised lamb shoulder on the table to keep the conversation flowing and ran it as long as I could. If this kind of place is not relevant to society, then we, it should become extinct. Right. So she's open to the idea and it is relevant, but it's not relevant there. Relevance the wrong word. The question is: Is it uh, is it a workable is it viable? economic proposition? Is it I mean, she does say no. when she talks about the whole situation, she says, you know, some restaurants are going to be fine. Right. She says some restaurants are going to die, and they probably should. She right. said they are surrounded by 
places she never even learns the name of because right. they go in and out of business, right. you know. Um, and she, so this is one of those kind of extreme conditions that separates the wheat from the chaff. chaff yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and she does say, I have been shuttered before with no help from the government. We survived 9-11, the blackout, Hurricane Sandy, the recession, and, and uh, you know, other events as well. Yeah. So clearly she's an extremely tough cookie. Look, I don't know what um, yeah. but and, and her decision is, and, and she is not, she doesn't do any online reservations. Right. She doesn't do any delivery. Uh, she's not involved in any of that at all. Um, she's been, you know, and she has people you know, always giving her advice, raise your prices, blah, blah, blah. She's held firm to try to yeah. be what she wants to be. She, Although one thing she says is she doesn't, um, she's had to increase services uh, in the sense of she started out only serving dinner, then she had to add on lunch. And now she has brunch. Add on brunch. She hates brunch. brunch. Well, and she brunch, even starts talking about her clientele a little differently. She's yeah. talking about the horrible people come to brunch, or at least some horrible people come to brunch, and she hates brunch. And you realize she's not in love with all her customers either. Look, right. I, we can't we could talk about this forever, and I don't know her economics because she says she's got a ten year lease, but she doesn't tell us what the terms of the lease are. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. but she does say she'd rather have. She's speaking in terms of fewer tables. Yeah. Bigger tables. Right. You know, people together. Let me she's, tell you the solution. She's still crafting. She this. wants a restaurant like her sister. <laughs> okay. That's true. All right. And we should remind people what it is. It's, it's, it's Canal it's, House Station, right, in Milford, in Milford, PA, which we talked about. It only previously. serves. Right. It's only open a few days a week. Right. It only serves breakfast and lunch. Right. You know. Um, and, and and they probably the rent's so you be get 100, it one hundred fifty dollars so a month. I'm wondering. I wonder if when her sister opened up, Gabrielle said, "What are you thinking?" Right. And now she's saying, "Ooh, Ooh. now I get it. Now it's, I want." <laughs> I mean, it has to be a little grander than what they're doing in. Milford. But this is how she talks about the restaurants. For right now, I'm going to let the restaurants sleep, yeah. like the beauty she is, shallow breathing, dormant, bills unpaid, and see what she looks like when she wakes up, young all over again in a city that may no longer recognize her or even want her. Yeah, well, not there. Look. I- uh, that's for Gabriel to, to figure out. But, but my point, but, but it is a very good article. It's very poignant. It's, it's the way she talked about yeah. her staff, the way yeah. she talks about her customers, but it, you know, just um, and but, her hard work. But her also her insight is saying, look, what this is doing is revealing that a lot of places are just on the edge, and maybe they're on the wrong side of the edge. You saw heard this week about department stores going bankrupt or possibly going bankrupt, and we had looked at an article in February, in the middle of February, which is before all this hit. And here's what's killing malls and department stores. And and people say it's online, but they say it's not even online. It's the competition with big box stores. It's the fact that people want services instead of things, and that's where they're putting their money. And frankly, it's income inequality that their uh, their customer base is disappearing to some degree. But without the because it's focused on, on the middle class, exactly. Yeah. But my point is that those forces were in place. They were active before the pandemic. The department stores aren't going to go because they got to. Good proposition, but they can't meet their rent. They're going because they don't make sense. That's yeah. where they're going. So it, it's this not is a nail on the coffin. Them. Yeah, this is still as opposed to Anheuser Busch. Not nice. making that beer. All right, so we do have to talk about sports because that's important. Now, sports. Uh, here's something they came up with a dart tournament, which makes sense because you could do that by Zoom or some equivalent. Because people just put a dartboard up and they uh, can compete. Because the so you're, is a dartboard. Are you changing the order here? Or no, are you just I don't think, um, oh, no, blocking oh, me oh, out? Oh, my God. I want to say something about online teaching. It, it will say this. 
So the article, the Times has a big section on online education. We talked about that before because you were in the throes of refashioning what you're doing for your art history students to be in an online format. And they have an interesting article here which says that people see that what's going on here is going to cause people in education to now be adopting online. We're going to see more online courses and less the necessity of being in person for learning, which we've said, we've observed, and you've observed more than I have, is probably not a great idea. And they say, you know something? They, they talk to an expert in online learning here. He says, actually, this is likely to have the reverse effect. In other words, the, on, the so-called online learning that people are doing now, the Zoom education, mm -hmm. is ineffective. Mm -hmm. Okay? Online, mm -hmm. learning, online learning can work. But mm -hmm. to do an online curriculum will take you 12 to 18 months of planning. Yes. What you have now, yes. what you have now is online emergency. Yes. And online emergency is bad. And it's going to leave a very bad impression with everybody. So that at the end when people say, would you like to continue to do this? Everyone's going to say, oh, God, no. We don't want to do that. Right. It's, going to set, it's going to set online education back. What do you think yeah. about that? Yeah. No, I totally agree. Because uh, that's one of my frustrations. I'm working very hard. But, uh, you know, trying to seriously uh, craft a high-level learning experience yeah. online is not something I have all the skills to do. I mean, really, all my skills are focused on maximizing the face-to-face -face experience. Now, that doesn't mean I can't operate a computer. Right. That doesn't mean I can't pull together um, an emergency online quiz, essay, and, you know, post a recorded lecture. Um, but uh, th I think there is more to a successful course than that. And it's exactly, uh, as you say, we, you know, it really is something that, uh, you know, somebody could do over the course of a year right. putting it together in, uh, you know. Right. So it's kind, uh, of a, it, it's so, kind of putting it in a bad light. Almost. But uh, to try to pretend, you know, and I was frustrated from that with that from the beginning, the idea that we're going to pretend we're in the classroom because we're on Zoom right. uh, doesn't make a uh, successful online course. All right. So that would be much a, more to it than unintended that. consequence. Be a step back for online education. Uh, so you know, maybe. Yeah, but, I, but you know what you need? You need uh, people specializing in that. Right. You know, and there are organizations like Khan Academy that do that. You know, they know how to do that, so other people can learn to do that right, as well. It's a long well. process. It's not um, you can't snap it's just, your It's a different it. process. Yeah. You know, it's just uh, the idea that uh, all of us, um, you know, sort of hybrid or traditional face-to-face -face teachers are suddenly jumping through hoops. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, I think it's a mistake to be making a, you know, kind of faux face-to-face -face experience online yeah. um, rather than crafting a truly online learning experience right. well that's exactly the point all right so just the the, the one line on, on this is that we're going to do the uh, the dart tournaments can be done remotely right everyone set up their own board they set it up uh with a certain spacing and it's it's called right. the uh professional darts corporation home tour and one guy named guy gary anderson uh who was a previous world champion he has not been able to participate why is it he is he injured no the problem is the Wi-Fi at his house in Somerset in southwest England is not good enough to participate in the tournament. He says that uh, I was up for it, but when we did test my Wi-Fi, it's not reliable. doesn't surprise me. I struggle to pay bills online. So there you go. A technical He can't problem. just go down the street to the pub or something? Uh, you know? Apparently not. He hasn't figured that out. 
Um, we had didn't watch the NFL draft uh, online, which was or something like online. I don't know how you describe it, which was gripping I know. in its own way. And everybody loved it. Everybody was. I was. Uh, I was Riveted. You were riveted, <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, well, and uh, you know, it was fun to see the coaches in their basements. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the only, the only organization I'm interested in now is the New York Times, who apparently is not covering the NFL anymore. So that's that's for them. But uh, the quick recommendation: uh, basketball, NBA, The Last Dance is the ESPN show that's showing every Sunday at nine o'clock. They do. I think two everybody episodes. who likes ba- basketball is already watching that. All right, I they also I recommend it. Huge, huge. It's about viewership. Michael Jordan's uh, Chicago Bulls, and it's interesting. I don't have to, uh, as you say, everyone's aware of it, but now I'm I'm a big fan too. So I think that's worth watching. Do you think uh, I haven't watched any of it? Yeah. Do I think what? Do you think uh, non-believers like me would find it interesting? Yeah, I don't or? know if you'd go for all 10 episodes, but uh, there's certainly parts of it interesting because he's interesting. He's okay. an interesting guy. I mean, people thought that, uh, you know, um, it's a little tricky because they show him as somewhat harsh light, in, you know, basically encouraging and might, might say even excoriating his teammates to drive them to a higher level. And uh, whether Jordan would be uh, disturbed by that, whether he would allow them to show that because he has certain uh, rights with respect to this. turns out that doesn't bother him. Jordan likes that. He's proud of that. He's not out to be a good guy. He's, he's just an extremely competitive guy, and he drives the others around him the same way. If they don't like it, that's the way it is. And he's totally yeah, comfortable with that. Uh, yeah, I can, I can believe that, yeah. that uh, he'd like to be a real person, not the cartoon character. Right. Um, that well, uh, has been presented over the years. Not yeah. every personality feels that way. Okay. Jordan is like that. All right. So that's another. We got a lot of uh, TV recommendations this week, which is basically what is the news <laughs> lately, yeah, right? right? What what to do sitting at home? Well, here's something that hasn't come up for a while. Leroy Anderson. Oh my God. I'm, I'm sure there aren't three people in our viewing audience that recognize that name. Uh, but uh, I was astonished when I opened the New York Times on Thursday and uh, saw this article by Anthony Tomasini. Who we saw the, interviewing uh, right, Stephen Sondheim. Right, music the critic yeah. for the New York Times. Or Steve calls him Tony. Uh, yeah, Tony Tomasini uh, said that um, Leroy Anderson's deceptively simple music will make you feel better about the world. Now... We'll play some some of his music at the end, of course. But um, I I grew up it was one of the few albums my parents had, yeah. um, and uh, with you know some of the famous songs were what syncopated uh, clock. Yeah, syncopated clock. Um, Fiddle faddle, which you tried to sing for me earlier. Yeah. The typewriter. Oh, the typewriter which sounds like a typewriter. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, very what you know, kind of light. Classical. He was the unrivaled master of light orchestral miniatures. Right. Breezy yet carefully constructed works that became reassuring staples of pop's programs. Right. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's true. You listen to that music. I bought a CD, I don't know, maybe um, 15 or 20 years ago mm-hmm. uh, with um, all these uh, popular pieces in it you brought it out here i did i did bring it out um i still have it i Mm -hmm. unearthed it and it really is you turn it on and it just is kind of fun kind of uplifting it's a guilty pleasure 
you know, it's which is like all this other comfort food. We are um, well. They do say in the article they kind of reject. Uh, first of all, Tomasini is the uh, classical music critic of the Times, and he rejects the notion of just calling it miniature or calling it light. I mean, he takes them somewhat seriously, and he says that one of his Leroy Anderson's great champions was Arthur Fiedler of the Boston Pops, and that he would regularly pop, Fiedler would include an Anderson composition in a Boston Pops performance. Uh, so you know. He says it's, it sounds simple and it sounds cute, but it's actually somewhat complex. It's a crowd pleaser. And he also mentions that John Williams, after Fiedler, um, continues with, with to the use Boston Pops, yeah, yeah. Uh, Anderson's mm-hmm. music. And he was a very, you know, he was uh, well-schooled yes, that's in for sure, music. Yeah. He went to Harvard, okay, and uh, he just, uh, this is what he did, and he did it very well. And, um, you know, the... Um, Famous Christmas song, Sleigh Ride. Right. Well, he yeah. wrote that. He that, wrote that. That's a real... And then there was words added yeah. later. Yeah. But, uh, you know, fun kind of stuff. Um, you know, give it a shot. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll play some at the end. It's it's a little bit like a jazzy metronome. It's, it's, it's a little hard to put your finger on. So was that early show music? Yes. Yeah, that was his? I couldn't... Don't make me... Don't make me sing it. But... That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, but I couldn't figure out what what that really... What the name of that is. It's the first name you mentioned. Is that one. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll look it up. Yeah. Okay. What do we have? What else do we have? Uh, well, I noticed an obituary. Yeah, this, it's the syncopated the, clock, is what it's called. That's the syncopated clock. That's right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um. All right. So it does seem syncopated. You know, yeah. I think I got the syncopation down, didn't yeah. I? You were great. Okay. You were Mark will have to comment on you, that. You knew all the words. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um. Anyway, Virginia Savage McAllister, age seventy-six, um, uh, passed away. Queen of Dallas Preservation. Mm. And I don't know anything about uh, architectural preservation in Dallas. I was just going to say, sounds like a contradiction in terms. Dallas Preservation. Oh, ooh, you are so... Um, Snarky. Yeah, yeah, that's really that's really mean. You okay, just, I'm sorry. I take it back. And there's a world out there. <laughs> oh, God. Barnaby. It's, <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, it's taken from a song. It's from Mame. <laughs> No, it's not Mame. Oh, it's not Mame. Oh, it's from Hello Dolly. Yes. Oh, oh boy. Oh, Jerry Herman, same yeah, guy. Right. You, same you guy. really, you, you just, uh, your brain uh, cells are dying. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you're drinking too much beer or not enough, but uh, yeah. we should get on that. Anyway. Um, <laughs> she, um, it was her 1984 book, A Field Guide to American Houses, written with her second husband uh, she had here's another one uh, went to harvard okay we got a lot of harvard grads uh, this week uh, she, went to harvard. Yeah. Uh, she graduated in 1965 with a degree in architectural sciences she goes back to dallas she starts saving houses okay and her mother did that as well her mother uh, would buy houses renovate them mm-hmm. and sell them and you know um all all to kind of preserve and uh you know um kind of sustain mm-hmm. Uh, threatened um, historic neighborhoods. Uh, so the only reason it had any kind of resonation with me was uh, when they said that book, A Field Guide to American Houses, 
I have that book. Yes. Oh, okay. oh I didn't know that. And so, you know, um, my parents were great fans of old houses, and, and we own a couple of old houses. Um, hard for me to imagine even being, buying a new house. Um, you know, who wants that? Something with no experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, um, it's a fun book because I, am I, I'm showing you this to you now. You, you can flip through. It has diagrams of every possible style in America. So if you were wondering, is that Greek revival mm-hmm. or is that arts and crafts? Yeah. Um, she documents it. She has uh, she does these diagrams, and uh, then each element is mentioned and discussed and variation. And then there are all these photographs. Apparently, she drove around the country with her kids in tow, mm. taking photographs and they really do look like um, non-professional snapshots do we have a house Um, in there did you check our house is not in there Mm. um but anyway uh so it it, you know a tremendous boon they say the latest edition of it is 900 pages well i have a much this uh, looks about 400 no yeah i have it's about 500 pages actually and it's it's a paperback but anyway virginia mcallister we'll get you the no, I'm 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 good with this. You know, this this still works. Uh, but she was married several times, and uh, you know, her theme was homes do more than shelter us; they reflect and inform who we are. All right, all right. Uh, so um, you know, there's again, as you said, one of the themes people are saying what to watch on television. Manola Dorgas, the Times uh, movie critic wrote about uh, musicals, um, dance musicals. Uh, And, uh, you know, some of these weren't great movies. And she goes back to 1931, for example, to The Smiling Lieutenant. Uh, Have you ever seen that? No. Have you? No. But so why, how do you know it's no good? I'm not not going to say it was no good. Well, you're kind of dissing it. It, I don't mean it. it, What about The Little Colonel? What about The Little Colonel? The Little Colonel's Lucy. Did you know that? Yes, I see it. Yeah. Well, that's a gem. Is it? Yes. That's Shirley Temple know? dancing with yes. Bojangles? Yes. Who doesn't know Little Colonel? I know it. Please. I, I didn't Daniel. like it. Please. Uh, I didn't like it. Oh. Do, you know, do you know The Duke is Tops, the 1938 musical? No. Okay. Well, let me ask you if you know this song from The Smiling Lieutenant. There's a song in The Smiling Lieutenant called Jazz Up Your Lingerie. No? Okay. So <laughs> Let me speak for yourself. I mean, <laughs> so anyway, then my lingerie is pretty jazzy. Yeah, no argument here. So they have... Is that a criticism or is it a, like a DIY, you know... No, I'm just telling you... Meant to help somebody out. It's a song and I don't know. It's I like, didn't see yeah. it. They mentioned... Those. Put a little bow here. <laughs> yeah, it's a, Leroy Anderson, if he got his hands on it, would be something. The uh, They mentioned 42nd Street. We all know that. But I was interested. I have to give Manola Dorgas credit because I criticize her so much. And she writes about Top Hat. Now, we all know Top Hat was the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers musical... You might call it the quintessential Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers musical, close enough to it. And I like Dorgas's uh, description of it. And, uh, of course, it's the standard thing where Rogers uh, meets Astaire. There's some misunderstanding, whether, you know, whatever, whether they like each other, they dislike each other, they can't stand each other. And, and then here's what happens, as it always does. Here's Dorgas. He invites her to dance, but she's reluctant, expressing the push-pull that characterizes the Astaire Rogers romance here and in other films. She relents, and they begin dancing. 
The whole thing is hypnotically beautiful, an expression of desire conveyed through harmonious flow. Finally, the dance ends and the lovers, because now we know they're in love, pause. Rogers is panting ever so gently, and her breathing gives the moment an erotic grace note. Catherine Hepburn said that Astaire gave Rogers class, and Rogers gave him sex. But it was their dancing together that brought the heat. I mean, I think that's a pretty good description, don't you think? Right. Okay. She did everything he did. But backwards and in high heels. Right. <laughs> okay. Kind of like our life. Uh, all right. With a, with a nod, with a nod to yeah. <laughs> Leroy Anderson. Uh, we got to move on. And uh, so this is Tamson Granger. And Dan Apuha. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper. We'll be back yeah. next week. Happy birthday, Zeke. Happy birthday, Zeke. Thank you.